3: Hi everyone, this is Hal Luftig with my Broadway Podcast Network show, Broadway Biz, where every episode I will chat with my friends, some of the top theater professionals in the business, about the business of Broadway. Come join the Broadway Biz, you'll be a Broadway
0: biz. you'll learn to raise cash to open your smash. You'll be all the rage
3: from the pitch to the stage. In no time you'll know the
2: business of show the
3: greatest job there is. Stephen Lindsay and Brett Sirota are co-founders and partners of The Road Company, which is a theatrical booking agency. Some of their current shows are Wicked, The Band's Visit, The Prom, and many others. Today, they'll be explaining exactly how they plan the tours for Broadway musicals on this episode of Broadway Biz. Hi, guys. How are you? Hey. Doing all right? Yeah. Hanging in there. That's all we can expect, right? Well, thank you for joining us today. I'm sure our listeners, you will enlighten a lot of people about your specialty in the theater business. So let's start with what is a tour booker?
0: Well, it's, it's always one of the hardest things to describe what you do, right? Especially to family members. So I'm going to let Brett take this one.
1: Oh, okay, great. Um, well, a tour booker, we work for a producer, or, or in some ways, you could say we work for the show. Uh, We represent these shows, Broadway shows and other attractions. And our basic job, we're we're salespeople. We are distributors. We take these tours. We figure out which cities they'll go to in North America. We contact those markets. We uh, try to sell them the show. And we hopefully make a deal. And then we follow up with all the paperwork and the contracts and the details about ticket pricing and, and all that stuff. And then we sort of hand it off, and this is a very overly simplistic view, but we hand it off to the producer and the general managers, and then they run the actual tour. We are not the tour managers in, in the sense of running the logistics of a tour. We we set it up and hand it off. It, it tends to be a little more complicated than that, but that, that is the, the basic explanation. To
0: add to that, the simplistic way of looking at what a booking agent does, it's not dissimilar to a musician or a professional athlete that has an agent that represents their interests and uh, and negotiates on their behalf. You know, the same is for Broadway shows as entities.
3: Okay, well, that's great, because, you know, I now we, I, even I understand. So I want to, like, let's get specific for a second. So uh, I have Kinky Boots, and we decide, the producers, Daryl Roth and I, decide, oh, we're going to take this on a U.S. tour. So we come to you as our booker and explain. So you then go around to all the different presenters in every city that can viably take us in terms of theater size, capacity, things like that, right? And you then come back to us and say, here's your routing. You're going to start in Boston. Just just an example, start in Boston. You're going to then go to Chicago. You're then going to go to the next city. Is Is that pretty much how it works? That's a pretty
0: basic way of, of, of looking at it, uh, determining how many weeks through the presenters and, and then creating a route, but it's, it's more to that. I think before any of that happens, it's determining the viability of the actual title on the road, right? So Kinky Boots, for example, you know, was a very different tour before it won Best Musical. We looked at Kinky Boots originally as, okay, it's doing this level of box office, it's incredibly successful, People love the show. This is perfect for the road. During that time, we're you know pre Tonys. were talking to the the presenters about you know the viability of a tour, how many weeks. I think at that point, most of the presenters were feeling that it was a subscription only. You know this market, like Tempe or Gamage Auditorium, was a one week market, uh, or Los Angeles at the time was a two week market at the Pantages. Um, when Kinky then won the Tony Award for Best Musical, it changed the parameters of how we were going to distribute that show. For instance, like LA became a four week run as opposed to a two week run. The best musical Tony absolutely has an impact on a touring show. There's no question. It's probably the the one of the, the only Tonys that make a difference in uh, the impact of the box office. And sometimes with shows that are struggling, uh, not Kinky Boots, but other type of shows, if you win the best musical, it enables a tour to happen when you know previous to that if the box office wasn't strong most of the road markets are determined by how New York does I think that's fair to say
3: let me let me do a deep dive here for a second so uh, are you saying when you say that Tony matters on the road is that because the local presenters feel like their audience uh, is very influenced by when a show comes in and they could say, Tony Best Musical. Who determines what the ingredients are, if you will, to go from a two-week to a four-week?
1: Well, here, I'll jump in here. Uh, I would say when you win a Tony Award for Best Musical, it, it it has it obviously has an impact on New York, or at least it usually does. And then that filters down through the the community and, and the road becomes aware of the increased box office. There's also a a, a good pressure that it brings uh, to the markets uh, who feel that they have an obligation to bring in uh, the best musical. And as Stephen mentioned, uh, that tends to be the only Tony Award that has that dramatic an impact. But as he said, you can have a show that presenters might not have been so hot on booking, but if it wins Best Musical, they feel they have to do it because that's what their subscribers expect. Their Broadway
0: series represents
1: excellence, Right.
0: And, you know, one of the one of the sort of I would say overused statements is, you know, Broadway is the longest road in America. Right. Um, because, <laughs> because everybody has a Broadway series and there are, you know, about 65 to 75 markets that have Broadway, legitimate Broadway series that bring in equity shows. And, and again, there are markets that don't necessarily book. The best musical, because it's the best musical, they book it because it it will make money. Broadway Road Tours are about satisfying your subscribers. So the load in, uh, you know, the 10,000 subscribers you have in X market will be satisfied and happy with the show. Um, and it, there's an expectation that that, that show will do uh, single tickets. Um, and in many cases, with some of the higher end shows, you know, VIP tickets. Now, that... The IP tickets, that whole dynamic is going to change post quarantine when theater comes back. But I think people book shows that make money. Very simply. It's crass. I hate to say it, but it's the truth. Follow the money.
3: <laughs> it's perfectly fine because this whole podcast is about how the commercial side of Broadway meets the artistic side. Could you walk us through what is the first step or what are the steps in mapping out a tour?
0: I think it's fair to say that, you know, listen, every producer that has a show and has spent the years and the and the time and the money behind their show thinks their show is is Hamilton, right? Or or their baby is the most beautiful baby and and so it's always always treated with kid gloves because, you know, we have a tremendous respect for the producers we work for, um, and work with. We always tend to be conservative as bookers. Some other booking agents are not, but we try. We try to be conservative. You can always come back. So if we decide, okay, Hal, you bring us a show. All right, you're opening in New York. Let's see what the, the box office looks like. Let's see how you do. But let's talk to the field about the viability of. The title, and sometimes that title is a, a movie title or a branded show, something that people already know, um, or maybe it's a an, an entirely new musical with a new title that that uh, road markets are, are less uh, um, familiar with. We basically go and and whatever the the case is for that show, we take it to the local markets, the road markets. We 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 talk about the viability of it, what they think it means if it were on their subscription or if it were off their subscription. And we sort of gather that information, that data, come to a conclusion, okay, this show might be like this show that we worked on 12 years ago or, or five years ago. And then we we put together what's called a ghost route where we sort of lay out our utopian route, which is pure fiction, but it's, it's sort of that, you know, um, it's, it's sort of like Pinterest. Right. Where you're taking snapshots and pictures and you're pasting it together. And that represents our show. And we determine how many weeks that is by talking to the local promoters. We understand where we fit economically. You know, if they have uh, five or six shows on their subscription, where do we fit in that? Do we need to be the uh, economical slot? Are we the mid-range slot? Are we a mega? Right, I think there's a lot of variables to determine how viable a tour is and how many weeks. But it really is from the first stages a lot of guesswork. And in some ways, it's an art to, to in doing this. Um, if if we were to pat ourselves on the back, it, it, it's kind of this. And somebody has to do the work, right? I think when local presenters talk to the producers and they have, and our business is so small, everybody has a relationship with everyone. I think the booking agent tends to be a neutral voice or ear and so where uh, a producer could talk to presenters directly they're not necessarily going to get you know a, a true statement of how that market feels about that that show in their market I think people do respect the creatives they respect the feel but the agent basically gets to the guts of things I think in some ways you know we're the truth serum of the business so the idea that we would create this ghost route, Determine the viability of it on the road. How many number, numbers of weeks? What the cost of the show is going to be? We then bring that ghost route to you, Hal, the producer, as a discussion point with our general manager to say, can we fit the needs of the, the creative and your idea of what this show needs to look like under these parameters? And that's sort of the starting, the big starting point. That is sort of the you know the big bang of any show's life on the road.
1: And and I'd like to also add, uh, as Stephen alluded to, there's a lot of data out there, uh, tremendous amounts of data available, and that can inform a lot of what you do. But uh, it really is an art. There really is a, a huge element of your gut and understanding the road because Uh, It's not just what your show is. Your show could be exactly the same kind of show, do the same box office as another show three seasons ago did, but the the rest of the road, the landscape you're going into could be completely different, and that could completely change the tour. Uh, A tour that you can get out one year might not have gone out two years later. You can't just look at data. And and our business, the, the data pool that we have access to is not super deep. You know, like there, there's there's not so many, there's not hundreds and hundreds of shows per year. There's a dozen, you know, so you, right. you don't have data that can be super reliable. You have to understand what else is going on in the road and where you fit in, in addition to lots of other uh, variables. And, and might I what? add also, just, just uh, when you say there's 12 shows,
0: ultimately in each market, that's where it lands, about 10 to 12 shows in each market. But and this is an example pre-closing right before the quarantine there were 40 shows being offered for the current 2021 season so not only do you know you create a, a work of fiction when we put together these tours but we're also calculating how does that fit you know amongst the 40 other shows that are being offered on the road right so it's a tremendously competitive uh, marketplace.
3: It must get uh, at some level, right? It must get uh, a little frustrating for you guys. You have a show and you do believe in it and it's doing okay in New York. Um, but then you go out to, you know, your your people on the road and they're like, well, not so much because this season we're going to take blah, 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 you know, X, Y, and Z. That must be, that there must be some level of
1: frustration to that, no? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we, we live in a time where, there are more mega musicals than than ever before that come back year after year. So you've got Lion King and Wicked and Hamilton. So since those return and they come back, uh, you have fewer slots available. So uh, there was a time five to 10 years ago when you'd be booking a tour and there might, there might be one mega musical taking up a slot in the season and the rest of it was open. It is not uncommon now to have two or three mega musicals Already holding a, a spot in a season because uh, there are so many of them and they keep coming back. So it, it it's gotten more competitive. We don't know what the post COVID
0: uh, marketplace looks like at this point. I can tell you from this point, uh, from this taping, you know the markets right now are looking at uh, the shows that are more reliable, the mega musicals, and I'm not I'm not going to mention any shows, but we know what they are, and the most branded product they can get their hands on because they know. You know, presumably if we open uh, in the spring or fall of 21, that will be a recovery season. And that season will consist of, you know, a limited number of new titles, but but generally branded product that audiences and new audiences know. And a lot of carryover, you know, eight to 10 months of rescheduled shows during COVID moving into the 21-22 season. The reopening of the road... Uh, and let alone Broadway, is going to be a, a new world, right? It's the new, it's the new theater distribution. We don't know exactly what that looks like. You know, we're very pleased to have shows that have meaning on the road and our presenters, you know, are interested in, in those shows. And we're, you know, literally holding dates into that 21, 22 and 22, 23. And in some cases through 23, 24 at this point. So it's, it's
1: wild.
3: Yeah, it sounds like one big major, if you think of it as a highway, one big major log jam.
1: The interesting piece to that is there's this log jam uh, of the shows that are that are moving and the, and the shows that have just opened. Uh, but I think we all expect then there could be a dearth of product from Broadway that might trickle down to the road in a few seasons. And But again, that can that's going to benefit some tours, some shows that might not have gone out will get out because there may not be as many new musicals. And then on the flip side, uh, you know, New York, where Hal, you talk
0: about the logjam. You know, the road has had a logjam with 40 plus titles every season for the past five or six years. New York theaters were like, you know, hitting the jackpot, right? Yeah, I mean, take whatever theater you can get. There was a logjam in New York where you had fully financed shows. That couldn't get in, and all of that I think will change once we uh, we reopen. I think we don't necessarily have the tourists automatically, so we're going to rely on you know our local folks on Broadway when we reopen. You know, assuming the border is open, people will come back to New York, but theaters will be- become available again. Uh, you know, for in the short term, one would think, but I'm a road guy, so I shouldn't speak on behalf of Broadway.
3: No, I would agree with you on that. Logic would just say that um, not every show that was currently running before, you know, COVID won't be able to reopen because of financial considerations. And some of the shows that were circling for a theater may now not be viable. They may not uh, have raised all their money and, and in those kinds of things. So I think Logic, you're probably right, just tells me there's going to be a loosening of everything for a while. How mm-hmm. long? Who knows? But I want to get back to some things that you mentioned before about when you when you book a tour. So from when I hear the just like Broadway to get a theater, the road to get uh, accepted by presenters, uh, there needs to be a financial viability to the show. You know, it can't cost that much, you know, to run in a city that can't handle, you know, that kind of expense structure. So, so what are some of the considerations or things that you would tell a producer like myself before, uh, that we have to do with the show before it can even attempt to go out on the road?
0: Well, one of the first things that, that I usually discuss with any new producer, like how we don't, you know, we've had this discussion, um, You know once i think and then we've worked on several shows together but i think it's important that every producer understands that we don't know what your show is yet on the road you may have a show that's working and it could be a hit and it's running in new york and it's you know and people are embracing it and you got or you got great reviews and and ticket sales are picking up but you don't have much of an advance i mean we, we don't know what you are going to be on the road yet. And I think that's an important thing, uh, you know, to to remember when, you know, we're building these tours. Every tour fits into some box on the road. Right. It's a pretty set uh, configuration, the whole subscription model. And, you know, oh, and we should talk about what the subscription model is, too, because some people might not understand what that is.
3: Yes, please. Yes, please
0: so so every market and this is uh, a, a new phenomenon meaning in the last you know several decades um, <laughs> it, it used to be that the road would go out on tour any tour would go out on the road and uh, you know you'd have this route it would be confirmed and everybody would go up on sale and and it was generally single tickets and what would happen is if if the front end of the tour didn't sell well, the tour would cancel. And, you know, and that happened, that happened with a a number of shows that uh, when Brett and I first opened, (laughs) you know, there were several shows that closed because either the show wasn't aesthetically good enough. And that happened with one. I won't mention which one or the show doesn't sell any tickets. So therefore the markets at the back end of the tour fall out. So it was hard when, when that existed, it was hard to establish any kind of credibility for Broadway touring shows. I, I Was it the 90s, I guess, Brett? Right? It was the 90s, right, where pretty much guarantees were established. What a guarantee is, is that the producer determines how much it costs, running costs for them, to build a tour for the road. They determine what the running costs and the amortization will be and, and what fees are associated with that. And the local presenter... Basically, today has what's called a subscription package where they've spent decades creating the trust with their patrons that the the shows they put together are the best shows from Broadway or elsewhere, sometimes the West End. And they've managed to create a base of patrons who are willing to advance them $1,000, $1,500 for six shows per seat. Similar to uh, getting season tickets at uh, a sports game, uh, the subscription model has become really the crown jewel of our business because we know that you know you could put the dancing monkey on stage, and if it's on subscription, it's going to be it's going to be loading in this number of 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 subscribers, of tickets, and this dollar amount. So it's a really valuable. And, and for conservative people like us, a valuable asset for road touring, something that, you know, Kinky Boots relied on. The subscription load-in is part of the box office uh, once they say yes to the show, and then we determine what the splits are based on the financials, and hopefully your show sells a ton of single tickets above and beyond the subscription.
3: Right. I was going to ask that question. When you, when you figure... In what each city's subscription, as you call it, loading is, is there a consideration on our guesstimate on how many single tickets that particular city uh, might sell for this show?
1: I, I would say this is coming from uh, again our conservative viewpoint. You know, if if I was producing a tour, I, I would say to my producer. Uh, you should make sure this works if we sell no single tickets, if it, were, if it works just on the guarantee. That's the ideal world, is that you can make money just on the guarantee, because you can never, you just can't rely on single tickets. Uh, that said, we just know historically there are certain markets that are very strong, that have truly cultivated uh, uh, their communities, and beyond the subscriptions, And for a good show, they're going to sell tickets. And there are markets that we know just aren't as strong, but it really is, it it, it continues to surprise us year after year. You have a tour, uh, a show that might've gotten accolades that people loved, and it goes out on the road and the single tickets just don't work uh, against all expectations. Uh, And and likewise, a show that, you know, we we may not even we may not personally particularly like and we've had plenty of those but but the american public wants that show and they love it and they buy tickets like crazy so it's a uh, it's really hard to bank on it over and over again we we often do part of the process of all this with almost every tour we do is we sit down with our gm and our producer and we we guess we make guesses oh i think this week we'll do 800,000 i think this week we'll do a million uh cuz they that's such a part of of the budgeting process for producers. And as they are, you know, creating these tours and getting investment and getting uh, people to put money in the tours, they need that data. They need to know how things look for them.
0: We lay out the financials also based historically on what the ticket scales were, where we think that fits in with your show, you know, what what it what the local expenses are we have the histories of what other shows have come in that are similarly sized and uh and we do breakdowns you know this is where you can be uh based on you know 65 70 80 so we we do a lot of sort of numbers and and guesswork for uh, and with our gms and our producers
3: this is a great example of where the the business side of the business marries the artistic side because i've as a producer when i have to go to the creators or jerry or i'm sorry you know any director i'm using jerry mitchell cuz we're talking about kinky boots but when i have to you know go back and say okay we need to not have you know the shoes come out from from beneath the deck or we can't have a particular piece flying in uh, as we do on broadway this that helps right if i can reduce the cost of what it costs to run that show every week on the road, that helps us become a more viable product,
1: a- yes? Absolutely, absolutely, 100%. And, and I'd, I'd even add to that and say, uh, something that I've seen even more of a push on, uh, on in recent years is uh, the load in, which is the period of time that the show is you know, unloading their trucks and putting it into the theater and getting ready, It used to be very common for first-run Broadway shows to have a two-day load-in. They would arrive Monday morning, they would load in Monday and Tuesday, and first performance is Tuesday night. There's been a real push, and and a lot of this is, and it's not necessarily even cutting back, it's just being more efficient and being smart about how the show is built, but doing a one-day load-in, it makes a huge difference. It it reduces the labor bills locally um, and brings down the costs, makes it easier to hit uh, profit. Uh, on the engagement. So that, that's been a big thing that I think has accelerated in recent years, in part due to the pressure because of the competitiveness. The guarantees have not necessarily risen at the same rate as costs have. So you have had to find economies, and that's that's a big economy that you can realize on the road. I would like to add, and, uh, this, and this is
0: not about us, but it's more about how, because you how listeners need to know that when we did Kinky Boots, And we had positioned our route and we decided that, you know, we just won Best Musical. Brett and I said, you know what, now we can be priced at this. It's terrific. We should go out with this. And Hal said, no, 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 no. We have to keep the economies in mind. And because I've had such uh, a tremendous history and, and I'm grateful to the local markets, I want them, you know, I want it to be priced at this. As not a gift, but as recognition of what they've done for me in the past, and I just want to say that Hal, because you're the you're one of the only producers who allowed something like that to happen, and and because of it, you I think they worked harder on the show. You made more money uh, with your producers, and I think the local markets made more money. I think it was a tremendous moment in touring.
3: Thank you, thank you for saying that. You <laughs> know. <laughs> to my listeners this wasn't a, this wasn't a prepped question I, I you know i swear uh they said that spontaneously uh, uh but thank you it is it.
0: the hell show no. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. So how
3: did you get started in the touring and booking business? What was your what was your trajectory to where you are today?
0: Oh, wow. Uh, well, I can give you the 30 second or I can give you the 30 minute. Which one do you want? How?
3: <laughs> i think the 30s let, let's compromise you know and say how about a minute
0: <laughs> i was a musician uh my whole life still am but it's more therapy than than professional now i studied music and a similar field but i thought i was going to be a jazz musician and went to work for uh, columbia Artists um as an assistant and you know Within, again, it created a path for me shortly after I was thrown, uh, someone put a smoking jacket on. We went to Cipriani's and said, hey, you know what? You and your personality, you'd be a great agent. And I said, sure, what's that, right? Because no one knows what it is to be an agent. It's not something you learn in school. It's not something that uh, there's a course for it. Yes, there's music industry courses, but they don't really talk about being agents. I was hooked really from that point. And shortly after that, uh, I <laughs> through a friend, I think it was my girlfriend met through on a plane, someone who was opening a new uh, company. Um, and that was uh, a company called The Booking Office, where, uh, which is now The Booking Group. You know, I was lucky enough to get a position with them and for about six years. From that point forward, I left that company and uh, soon after, uh, with, with Brett, and Brett's part of this story, um, we created a, a business plan for the road company. Um, Brett,
1: how do, how, do you, how, do you, how do you pick up from there? <laughs> My trajectory was a little different. I was in law school uh, studying to be a lawyer, and about halfway through law school, I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. But I finished it. I took and passed the New York State Bar and immediately knew I wanted to go back into theater. Um, so from my college days, uh, I, I had a lot of friends who were working in theater and one friend of mine said, oh, you should talk to my other friend. You've met him before. Um, he's got, a, a, a company, uh, they're a booking agent. And I also didn't know what a booking agent was interviewed with them. And that was the booking office. And I got a job there. I think I started about, uh, a year after Steven. Uh, and that's where we met and we were sort of the low guys on the totem pole there and bonded. Over our uh, our 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 working relationship, and um, and then around then when Stephen left, I left about six months or a year later, and we were naive and young enough at that point to say, "Hey, we could do that. We could start up a company, right? We know what to do." Um, We had no shows, (laughs) which in in (laughs) retrospect was completely foolish. But we started the company. But we were passionate. We were were passionate. passionate. We were passionate. We had a lot of people who believed in us. We were able to raise some money um, from friends, uh, from work colleagues, and uh, we, we you know, threw this together, and, and uh, it was, um, you know, in the early days, we did not start with Broadway shows, but, you know, over time, we, we got there, so.
0: One of the greatest lookbacks to uh, Hal is, is reading the original business plan, which, it, You know, it it just leaves you in stitches like, oh, my God. And how wrong (laughs) everything was and how, you know, how did anybody invest any money into this business plan? (laughs) But in hindsight, you know, it was about following a passion.
3: This was actually a plan that you gave to potential investors that uh, not only explained what you were going to do and how you are going to do it, but the cost factor, like how they were going to make a profit on their investment, correct? Correct.
0: Um, not not unlike a show, right? I mean, literally, we opened a show.
1: We we made it up. We. Um... <laughs> <laughs> That's why we make great agents. <laughs> we, we bought one of these books, you know, "Business Plans for Dummies," something like that. We did. Yeah. <laughs> It was helpful. It actually got us through the process. And then that became part of the offering. We made up the structure of like how the company would make money and how we would distribute profits or losses. And because in the early first year and a half, there's necessarily a loss for any booking agency because of the, um, the time you have to book ahead. You know, we're booking stuff for two years from now. So when you first start a company, you start with no revenue until your tour starts. So we knew we would lose money, but there's value in loss. So that business plan and the offering laid out all that stuff. And uh, that's how we convince people. But let's add also part of that business plan.
0: And this is probably good advice to any listeners if you're thinking about, and you never want to open a booking agency, but any company for that matter. uh, Some of our investors are actual presenters on the road. So knowing that we were going to be a road uh, touring company, um, we knew that we needed to have some strategic investors to invest in us in hope that, you know, we'll have a, a foot in the door when we rep- when we finally representing certain types of product that they'll favor us a little more than others um, and support us in that way. And, and that strategy worked for us.
3: Well, clearly it did, because you guys are hugely successful at what you do. But I I just want to take a moment and pause for our listeners and tell uh, anyone uh, who may be thinking of investing in a Broadway show, this is not power Broadway show. <laughs> it capitalizes and gets investors. We don't make stuff up and then go, oh, you know, years later, well, I guess we said that, but we did this. It's it's very regimented and very strictly um, uh, followed by the attorney general. You're saying that the telling loses a story, and I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I had no idea. And I used to give these guys my shows. So. <laughs> <laughs> what was i thinking yeah 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 yeah
0: and listen we've graduated we've gra- graduated to relying more on data and and truth too hal so you know <laughs> whatever
3: that means <laughs> do you guys remember what the first show was that you actually booked
0: oh sure definitely it was um and we're tremendously proud of it late night catechism we booked a one woman show a nun show And just for some context, too, when we opened, we had several themes and hooks in terms of why um, it was a good time to be uh, an agent and to open an independent agency. Because at that point, there was a tremendous consolidation happening in our industry. That was like the late, uh, like 96, 97, 98, where... SFX was buying every rock promoter in the country. You know, companies even on Broadway were merging and consolidating into larger organizations. Booking agencies were then gobbled up by these large entities. So we were really the only independent booking agency. And that was part of our part of our pitch with the investors and getting shows. So our first target was independent producers who weren't being uh, getting their fair share or representation from these larger agencies who all also wanted to be producers. Part of it, I think the success of our company was because of the climate and you know the timing of it as well. you know very quickly it, late night catechism, very quickly we started picking up smaller Broadway shows that other agencies would
1: normally have passed on. yeah let me let me add to that because one thing I'm very proud of in the early days when we were pitching this stuff, one thing that we, I, I feel, really pioneered with a lot of the PACs that we still work with was we brought them, we, we really, we didn't have access to Broadway at that point. We weren't established. So we had these off-Broadway shows like Late Night Catechism, and the pitch that Stephen would make to these presenters is, hey, you have these Broadway series, uh, you have your big space, I have this little show why don't you put this little show in your little space? Because a lot of these PACs have multiple theaters. And the pitch was put this little show in your little space and take your subscription. And instead of doing one week in your big space, do three weeks in the small space. And that worked. And that's how we had uh, our start. And Late Night Catechism was so successful. At one point, we had six simultaneous productions running. So one that one little show, and when we started, I think it cost fifteen thousand a week. Wow, that that does sound
3: uh, really forethinking to tell a presenter instead of one week in your big theater where a small show like that would probably just get swallowed by the size of the auditorium, to take three weeks and put it into a smaller space. That right. must have that was forethinking. Did you? Get any pushback on that? I'd say about half
0: of the Broadway markets booked Late Night Catechism, and it was tremendously successful because, again, it starts with the quality of the show, right? I mean, the show resonated; it worked. It had been running in Chicago for for years. I mean, the creator Mary Pat Donovan was was running it, and um, and it was represented at the time by a producer that we had worked with in our previous live at our last the last company that we had worked with. And if you have ten thousand or twelve thousand subscribers, the particular presenter has a five hundred seater. You know, you know, you're sold out for three weeks if you put it on subscription. So, we, for the first time, I think for the first time for many of these presenters, they were, you know, these unused spaces were were finally being used not for two nights or three nights or rentals, but for three to five week runs. And so. Shortly after that, we started pushing Off-Broadway subscriptions in some of these markets, and that worked. Um, And to this day, they still continue to do that. We started getting, we do less of those now, but uh, because we have uh, the bigger shows, it was incredibly viable because there were a limited number of shows touring. And when they needed a slot, we were always there to put another show into an alternative venue.
3: That it's brilliant. I, I had no idea the genesis of that, but it's a, it's actually it's a, and a brilliant idea. Not only has it survived, but it's actually some of the uh, New York theater companies now use that. They have you know some of them have several spaces, and they'll take a show that. May not fit into their big house and they'll do it you know at their smaller black box space and it and it works it works it's a formula that works not only obviously on the road but uh, in New York City and I'm sure other cities where there are major uh, you know resident theaters, regional theaters
0: and I think I think at the time for, for many of these presenters that traditionally only did Broadway, even to today, they continue to do uh, small runs, smaller show runs in their smaller spaces. It provides a much more unique, intimate experience for their subscribers.
3: Do you guys remember each of you what your first touring show that you saw was?
1: I I can't say with certainty. Growing up in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, back then it was the mecha- the Mars Mechanic Theater, which was not a great theater, but I think it was probably a touring production of Fiddler. To be to be frank, do you remember who was in it, Brett? Oh, God, it's harder. I I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure.
3: What was yours, Stephen?
1: How could I ever forget, like, sitting on the aisle and that
0: friggin' cat coming next to me at the Forest Theater in Philadelphia (laughs) and blinking its (laughs) eyes at me and scaring the (laughs) bejesus out of me. It was cats at the Forest Theater in Philadelphia. I I was not a fan after, (laughs) um... (laughs) So... But I'm sure I heard the movies much better. I heard the movies much better. So I'll have to check that out sometime.
3: So what happens when a show cannot get to its next city on time, whether it be a snowstorm
1: or a mechanical uh-huh. failure? That's a good old force majeure uh, most of the time. Um, but that has certainly happened plenty. Um, I feel like, quite frankly, with climate change stuff, we've, we've encountered more weather-related issues I'd say, in the last several years than we, than we used to 15 years ago. But it, it, it comes down to an analysis at that point. Is it a force majeure? Is it impossible to do the performance? Uh, and sometimes there can be some wrangling about that. But for instance, mm-hmm. if there is a massive snowstorm in a city and the government declares a, a snow emergency and they don't allow people to drive around or something, so you, you can't do the performance, that's a force majeure. And what happens in that situation, the producer has to return uh, the the pro rata portion of the guarantee that they've been paid, um, and both sides sort of lose whatever they had. You know, it's each side eats their own costs, and uh, you just have to, you know, lick your wounds and move forward. But uh, yeah, and, and if it's a longer run, you do have the benefit of you can have the cancellation, the canceled performance. People who had tickets can sometimes be put into later in the run. So we've seen that on a, on a tour like Wicked, um, where if for some reason there's an ice storm, you can put people into week three because you have you have the inventory at that time. When it's a more successful show, successful market, that there may not be inventory uh, in a shorter run, uh, that can be more challenging. That's generally how, how, how you deal with that that sort of situation. It's, uh, it's not pleasant uh, to deal with that. What I've been amazed to see over the years is how they do... They they, may, they figure it out. They they find a way to do it. And it, you may be missing some of the scenery. You may be missing some of the costumes. But assuming it's not missing, even even if it's missing an integral thing, they they just do it. Um, they make the best of it and and figure it out. Is it's always amazing to me how um, those of us who are back in the offices in New York or wherever we have one way of viewing it. But when you get down in the trenches on the road, these people they they get it done. And it's it's always you know we. We are dealing with the people who are going by the book and by the contract and they're saying, oh, we can't do this and we can't load this in. But when you get out there in the reality, these, these stagehands and these pros, they figure out a way to get it done. I can't recall, I don't know if you can, Steven, a time where something like, you know, where it's not a complete disaster, like when a, we have had times where like a truck crashes and the set gets destroyed. But I, I've, we've had experiences where they do the show with no costumes.
0: As long as the audiences are aware of what has happened, right? And I know it. I know what Show mm-hmm. you're referring to. I think. <laughs> I mean, it, it does rarely happen on the on uh, sort of the first class side. But I think I think with the non union shows, and and again, I, I I agree with Brett. I think that the these companies that go out on these road tours, God bless them. You know, I mean, they are they are like they are pros. They're good at what they do. We rarely hear about the bad stuff um, because they always sort of put on the show. It's, it's about putting on a show. But when you get to the non-union shows, even though we know most of the buildings, now there are, earlier I said there are 70 to you know 75 uh, major Broadway presenters, there's also another 250 smaller markets, you know, secondary, split week, or tertiary markets out there. And most of our non-union shows, which you know, sometimes play six cities in a week. You know, they <laughs> where you know where the actors uh, bus and the stagehands bus, but they they cross each other in the night. They never see each other. We usually have an A B C configuration because a lot of these you know can't technically load in the three or four trucks that were that were touring. But the the touring production companies that specialize in those type of tours, they they know how to do this. I mean, it's it. It feels impossible, but uh, but it works. And you know, they figured out a way on those tours to load in eight hours every morning to put the show up at night. They load it out in four hours, and they travel 300 miles to the next city.
3: Yeah, I agree. It it always amazes me of that that statement. The show must go on. Well except in this current situation with covid but it always amazes me how people pull together and they make shift they do whatever they have to do to get that show on well gentlemen like all good things the show must come to an end but i am i am so thankful for you being here and and well, well, before I let you go, um, we have what I call my rapid fire section. And I'm going to ask each of you the three questions I'm going to ask each of you. You're going to have to answer separate. I ask that you don't overthink it. Hear the question. First thing that pops into your mind, okay? Um, and one of you is going to have the advantage while the other one's answering. So I'm going to start with you, Stephen. Um, what, what is your favorite musical? Wicked. i was like fair enough and
1: brett what's your favorite musical the show that i loved and it was not so much it was the it was the experience uh spring awakening when when it first came in steven and i didn't know anything about it on a whim we were like let's go check out the matinee on wednesday we went in we knew nothing about it and it just blew us away and we got so excited we never represented it we didn't get the show but The experience was, you know, we usually know so much about the shows when we see them, we knew nothing, and it it blew me away, and it always has stuck with me uh, ever since I saw that one.
0: Um, And if I can add uh, to to my original uh, answer, if if I were to say aesthetically, and if I were to overthink, um, I did personally, aesthetically, musically love once. The musical once was, uh, you know, is, is dear to my heart. It touched me personally uh, from that point of view. But Wicked as an overall experience is my favorite musical professionally, you know, in terms of uh, and how we've represented that show.
3: Those were very, very thoughtful answers. OK, now I'm going to start with you, Brett. Yes. What is the wackiest moment you've ever experienced
1: in the theater? Oh, um, wackiest moment, wackiest moment. I know what it okay. is, Brad, for you. Okay, okay. You know what? I, I, I don't know if this counts, but it's, it's been working in the theater. Years ago, somehow, Stephen and I started to become known for, at the various conferences, getting into various costumes or getting up in, in front of the entire uh, 800 members of the league and, and introducing something. And uh, one of them, you will remember this, was Kinky Boots. You referenced it earlier. For me, so having to dress up in silly costumes, whether it's the kinky boots or Stephen and I dressing up as Rocky and Apollo when we uh, represented Rocky.
2: <laughs>
0: now, uh,
1: listen, the, li- the
0: listeners have to realize this is so out of character for Brett.
1: We we are very uncomfortable with, with uh, Stephen and I, especially, we. I do not like speaking in front of large groups and put on the kinky boots and do that. I mean, that was insane and, and terrifying and... Uh, uh, I, I would I think it qualifies as wacky.
3: yeah that that does qualify as wacky. And so the follow up to that question was we'll stay with you for a second, Brett the uh, The lesson you learn from
1: that would be uh, twofold uh, not to take myself too seriously, you know to, to be comfortable with that and uh, and uh, to push my limits to push to push the limits of of what you're comfortable with. i I hate speaking. And I've done that and I, I survived. So, yeah.
3: You know, I'm, I'm really like moved by that <laughs> answer, Fred. It's, it's, I mean, seriously. Okay, Stephen, your turn. What is the wackiest moment you've ever experienced in the theater? Uh,
0: you know, what, I, I hate to, to repeat what, what Brett said, but kinky boots, kinky boots, getting up in front of those boots, you know, was, and, and then walking up the stairs to the stage and the heel broke. Yes, I remember. That. <laughs> was like terrifying for me. Up until that point, I wasn't nervous. Yeah. We were joking backstage. We walked up there. I'm wearing boots with my boxer underwear uh, and uh, and a suit up top. And yeah. you know, and the lights are on us, and it was just. It, I froze. I mean, it was terrifying. But like Brett said, we got through it. And, you know, and we reassured ourselves afterwards, were you okay? Was I okay? Were you, we did okay, didn't we? we? We got through this. It's done, right? And and just our community afterwards coming up and, you know, a pat on the back, a hug, uh, you know, a raz, you know, you guys did great. It, it, was, it was those moments where it was like, oh, it's meaningful, right? We did it for our show. We did it for ourselves, you know, ha-ha. And, but... You know, everyone heard about it, so we put ourselves out there when when um, when we never expected to be put out there. So that was the that that is the wackiest thing to happen to me in theater.
3: The lesson you learned from that Kinky Boots experience was, well, it, you know what it was? Uh, it was to represent more shows like Kinky Boots.
0: I mean, you know, uh, the truth is that that moment made me realize, you know, here we are representing this show. Um, that soon uh, won Best Musical. And we were able to, you know, position in a way that our entire company was, you know, happy with each other, right? I mean, the route, the routing work, the communication was on. Like, I wanted to represent that experience to me was, you know, by putting ourselves out there. and and And, and even though we're booking agents and we're behind a desk and we're not involved necessarily in the creative aspect of it, you know, we were still backstage with Hal, Jerry, and Cindy, laughing, and just saying, "You know, can I take home the boots? Can I take them home?" And I think, you know, that sort of collaboration—you—you you invited us into that experience, and you know, I decided after that that I, I need to be part of that experience, um, and that led to. Uh, this is a long-winded answer for rapid fire, but that led to you, Hal saying, you know what? We should make and invite every presenter on the road to wear these boots. And they
3: did. (laughs) The audience, uh, which were made up of a lot of presenters, went crazy. And then, yeah, from that came, you know, we should make the local presenter at the first performance. They usually come out and make a little curtain speech at the first performance to thank the audience and to talk about fundraising and things like that. But uh, we said if they would wear the boots, I would fly out to that city and wear them with them um, and give a little why it's important to support this local theater kind of speech. And it was a ton of fun. Oh, it was great. It was was so successful. And it It was hilarious. And you know what? And I think every presenter out there had the same experience
0: that Brett and I did. You know, it was enlightening. It was great. It was terrific. It was absurd. It was great. You know, it, it just... It it was one of those things that stick out in my head.
3: It's been wonderful sharing this hour or so with you and your insights into this side of the business is invaluable. And I'm sure our listeners will just love it. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time of doing this. You you guys are great at what you do and you're great friends. So thank you and stay healthy, stay safe.
0: Thank you, Hal. Same to you, Hal. And thanks for including us on this. This was a real treat.
3: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Broadway Biz. If you have any questions about today's episode or the business of Broadway in general, let me know on Instagram at Podcast or via email at BroadwayBiz at HalLuftig.com. Be sure to follow me at Broadway Biz Podcast for updates on everything Broadway Biz, the business of Broadway. Broadway Biz is part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Huge thanks to Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, and Brittany Bigelow. This has been produced by Dylan Marie Parent and Kevin Connor and edited by Derek Gunther. Our fabulous theme music is by Nell Benjamin and Lawrence O'Keefe. To learn more about Broadway Biz, visit bpn.fm slash BroadwayBiz.